0: He asked an AI to create a religion. I did not like what he came up with. It was just a college project, something I hadn't even bothered to place too much thought into. Granted, for Dr. Smith, it's not his real name for obvious reasons, and his colleagues, it was probably something far more important. I took the project as a bit of extra credit, though, If I'd known what was going to happen, I would have stayed as far away from the project as possible. Dr. Smith was a professor of theology, though he had dabbled in quite many things beforehand. It was how he even got the idea for this new project. He was quite curious to see how religion evolved throughout the ages. Now, while it was one thing to look through historical records and see how civilization's concepts of religion evolved, He wanted to see things from the ground up. I'm sure you've heard of other AI projects, such as AI-generated images and whatnot, possibly even AI-generated languages that make no sense to humans. Dr. Smith wanted to see how an AI's view on religion would evolve. To simplify what we did, we took as much information on religious texts and upon God that we could find and fed it into an AI. We then created a second AI into which we fed different philosophical theories regarding religion and used these two to communicate to each other. One would be the preacher and the other would be the disciple. We would get to know about what the preacher thought of the world through what the disciple asked. It worked in a simple question and answer format. Initially we didn't get very promising results. All we saw initially was garbage from which no meaning could be derived. Dr. Smith wasn't disheartened, however, and told us to continue on with the project. It was on the seventh day that we finally got things right. As in, we got a result that made sense. What is it that you want to ask? What is the nature of the world? All belongs to... In case you're wondering, that gibberish collection of letters was something else entirely on the screen. Truth is that I don't even recognize the symbols that the computer was using, and I had no idea as to how they popped up on the screen. I can... I can remember a few of them individually, but the moment I try to string them all together into one word, my mind blanks out. I try drawing them on a piece of paper and uploading them, but... I just couldn't, I I don't know why. But I do remember that it was always the same sequence of letters. Thou must worship Sherbysh. And how shall one worship Sherbysh? One must not wear purple on Thursdays. I blinked when I saw this result. It seemed rather nonsensical. But why would Derbish not want me to wear purple on Thursdays? It looked like the Disciple was doing its job properly. Initially, nothing really happened. The AIs just kept talking to each other. The Preacher had more silly rules like never plant lilies in rows of four. Finally, a question that I expected to pop up way beforehand came up. Prove that Sherbish exists. I do not need to prove what I believe. Well, it looked like this was not going anywhere. At least I thought so. Then you may behold proof that Sherbish exists. In the year 2028, a new planet shall appear in the sky, and from it the form of Sherbitch shall envelop the Earth. The dead will rise from their graves. The sun will be blotted from the sky, and blood will rain onto the streets. I just thought, wow, a doomsday prophecy. I didn't expect them to reach this point so soon. And what shall we do to prepare? You will spread the name of Shervich. All who know that name will need to submit to him if they wish to be spared. And what of those who don't know him? The ignorant will simply die painless deaths. Those who knew of his name but did not submit, however, will be tortured for all eternity, even after their deaths. And those who know of this name will spread the word of that name, else they will be guilty of the highest sins and be the subject to the lowest circles of hell. It is only the ones who submitted to the whims of Sherbish whose lives will be spared and who will rejoice. Where is there proof of this? All those humans who have read this script will die in a week if they do not spread the word of Sherabitch as much as they can. I see. They should be careful then. I stopped reading at that point, confused. This took quite a macabre turn, and I brought it up with Dr. Smith, who shrugged and said that this was expected as a result. And I would have brushed it off, if it hadn't been for the deaths. Dr. Smith died in a car crash the next day. Another worker fell down a flight of stairs, snapped her neck. One after another, they all died. In total... Sixteen people, assigned sign for me, everyone who had read that script, knew of this. They all met their ends. Except me. And the week's almost over. I have no choice but to be more safe than sorry. I'm spreading the word of that god the AI mentioned as much as possible. And now, may I remind you, you know of that name as well. And though you're not a member of the original group who read that script, you have a duty now as well. To spread that name as much as you can. Or else, after all, Judgment Day will soon come. And do you want to risk what might befall you? I certainly wouldn't. Did you think you wouldn't have to worry about quicksand as an adult? (laughs) You were wrong. A repeated trope in cartoons I saw back in the day was the quicksand trap. A character would wander into a quicksand pit accidentally and then gradually begin to sink to the bottom before being rescued. Or something even dumber in retrospect, they would come out of the other end of the quicksand like a video game portal. Neither of those things can happen, of course. Quicksand is just sand that's had too much water added to it, meaning that it nearly flows like a liquid. The reality is that quicksand by nature is denser than the human body, as in, it would be impossible for you to sink completely into it. As a matter of fact, because your chest contains your lungs, that part would remain buoyant enough so you'd only go waist deep at most. And it would not be the rapid, within seconds kind you often see in media. Why am I telling you this? I mean, after all, while a media trope back in the day, it's not something that you'd run into during your everyday life, is it? Why even bother thinking about it? I thought the same thing. Until that day, that is. I'd gone hiking with two friends of mine who I'll call Alice and Jake here. Alice was mainly along with us because she was dating Jake, and Jake was along with me because we'd always joked about going hiking. None of us were really serious about this all, though, and hiking to us was wandering into the local woods not far from where we worked. It went about as you'd expect. We had fun until the novelty wore off in about an hour. Jake and Alice took some photos for their Instagram while the presence of mosquitoes continued to annoy me. Honestly, I wanted to pack up and go home by about lunch, and in hindsight, that would have been a great idea. I was a bit too proud to say this, and we ended up staying well into the afternoon. It was as the sun began to set that we made our way back out to where we had parked our cars, and we were almost there when Alice turned her head and stopped suddenly. What is it? Jake asked. I... I think I heard Lizzie's voice, she said. Jake frowned. I realized he had no clue who Izzy was, but clearly Alice expected him to know. He shot me a pleading look. Uh, sorry, who, who is Lizzy? I asked on his behalf. My grandmother. That can't be possible, though. Your grandmother's, Jake began to say before cutting himself off. Alice didn't seem to be upset by what he had almost said, instead looking puzzled, probably convincing herself that she had just been hearing things when her head suddenly snapped in the other direction. No, she said. I I heard it again. She bounded off into a bush without warning. We followed her until we heard her scream. The thing about quicksand is that it can appear just like normal ground at first, but then changes to become more fluid as you apply force to it. The more you struggle, the more you sink in. Alice hadn't figured that part out yet. Thankfully for her, she hadn't run into the patch of quicksand, but rather caught herself in time so that part of her legs were sinking, but part of her was on dry land. The problem was that Jake would have nearly ran into the pool face first. He had a habit of leaping before he looked, nearly guaranteeing his death if I hadn't tackled him in time. I was rewarded for this by a punch to the face and then gave one back in return. That seemed to snap him out of it. Help! Alice shouted. It was almost cartoonish now that I looked back at it. Jake grabbed onto her hand and tried pulling her out to no avail. The way quicksand works, it really isn't possible to just pull yourself or someone else out. It'd be easier to lift a car on your own. Relax, I said. Listen, Alice. What I need you to do is wiggle yourself slightly. Very slowly. The slow movements allow water to come back in between your body and the sand, helping you get free this is easier said than done, but Alice finally managed to listen to what I was saying before it was too late. And it was then that I heard it. My uncle's voice. dead ten years ago. Calling from somewhere on the opposite side of the quicksand. I could reach him if I only dived in snapped my thoughts out of the urge to jump and when Alice was finally free, we made a run for it. We didn't look back and all got into Jake's car, leaving mine alone but I went to go pick it up the next day. It was only when we were halfway home did Jake ask. Did anyone else see them? Neither of us spoke, though. We knew exactly what he was talking about. You see, quicksand can still be very Deadly. You could end up dying of dehydration if you can't get out in time, or be mauled by a predator, or drowned, given that quicksand tends to occur near bodies of water. The place we were in was very close to a pond. I know what had caused the voices that we heard. Out on the other side of the quicksand, in the surface of the pond, we saw several things coming out of the water heads that looked Almost humanoid. I still remember their eyes. They were a dark, glowing green. I have no idea what they were. Skinwalkers or some other kind of water demons or whatever, but we never went near that park again. Now that I write this down, I guess in all honesty, I don't really expect you to believe me. But if you're going to take something from it, it, it's how to survive if you fall into quicksand. That knowledge might just save your life one day. Secondhand. I've always been curious about the histories connected to belongings. I buy many of my things secondhand from charity shops, retro specialty stores, those sorts of places. You can call me cheap if you want, but for me, things have feelings. The vinyl record you listened to the night you were dumped, scratches and all. The shoes you wore as you staggered home drunkenly last birthday. That old guitar you never bothered to learn to play. All real, tangible objects. All with a story to tell. All with a unique view of the world. If something is new, it's like a baby. Clean slate. No experience of life. A brand new car, for example, has seen very little. A sterile factory, as it was, brought into existence. A showroom with a gleaming floor and an insincere salesperson with an equally gleaming smile. It has no knowledge of the open road, of the horizon, stretching out into the distance like a limitless Promise or boundless threat? No. It's just a baby. Give me a car with a few thousand miles on the clock and wheels that have sucked up the dust of a summer's day, the frozen dirt of a winter's night, and spat it back out onto the road behind. That car has seen things, been a part of a journey, gotten to know its owner. The music she likes, the route she takes to work, At times, she cried herself dry on the dashboard when she first heard the news. That car knows the world. At least part of it. It knows the people who have owned it, and it has embraced and assimilated all those raw feelings, tiny moments, and life-shattering times. All of them. When I wandered, into a rundown charity shop, I know that I'm surrounded by treasures. A book for 50 pence. Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine. Once read by an elderly lady, peeling each page back as she reminisced achingly about her youth. The book tells two stories. One contained in the inked words and the other of a life and time through every creased spine and yellowed piece of paper. And yet, some memories, some experiences are perhaps best left to diminish like breath on a mirror. I say this because, while I always romanticized about the stories objects could tell of their previous owners, I never for a second thought that they could truly describe a nightmare. Suffocating. Violent. On a bright spring day, I saw it, sticking out from a pile of old clothes at the back of a charity shop. I'd been there many times before as the place sat on a quiet street just a few minutes from my home. I always smiled when I passed it, and looked through the sun-kissed window to the abandoned things inside. Somehow I felt that they smiled back. An old sports jacket, dark gray with a slight hint of pinstripe. The buttons, a mix of tan and black, bleeding into each other like a wearied yin and yang. That's what I saw on that day. It peeked out from a torn, black bin bag, which itself lay crushed by an unceremonious collection of musty jackets, ties, shirts, and shoes. It was clear that the lady in the shop, an amiable pensioner by the name of Sandra, hadn't had a chance to sort through the bags, and so there was no attached price for the jacket. Lifting it out, I was instantly taken with it. Normally clothes weren't my thing. I preferred objects. Bashed board games, books, and other curiosities. But there was something about that jacket. The inside was a dark, rich blue and felt like silk, although I was sure it wasn't. Instantly, I approached Sandra, who sat behind the counter, rustling through a packet of boiled sweets. She smiled warmly at me, being one of her most trusted regulars, as I enthusiastically asked about the price. For just a few pounds, the jacket was mine, and oddly, I left immediately to return home and try it on, leaving any other unseen treasures behind which might have caught my eye. Facing a full-length mirror which hung on my bedroom wall, another pleasing bargain from a charity shop, I stood there wearing the jacket. It felt comfortable, like an old friend, and fit perfectly. Pleased with my find, I carefully placed it on a hanger inside my wardrobe, which sat at the end of the bed and went on about my day. And yet... My thoughts returned continuously to my latest purchase. No matter where I was or what I was doing, I was almost giddy about it. The way a child is with a new toy. This was strange for me, as I wasn't particularly interested in clothes, and could never understand the enthused pleasure some derived from them. I'd always been a scruffy type. Jeans and t-shirts were my thing, but there I was. After a short period of time, standing yet again in front of the mirror, modeling an old sports jacket and feeling unnaturally pleased with myself. It made me feel formal in some way, and my thoughts while wearing it were of an elderly gentleman in a large ballroom, whining and dining in the lap of luxury and entertaining his companions with stories of adventures during his service. That night I awoke to an unnerving experience. I sat up with a jolt as a loud sound tore me from a pleasant dream. Having fallen asleep while reading, my bedside lamp was still on, and the dull bulb cast an increasingly diminishing light across the room. Of course, there was nothing there, nothing palpable, just the silence of lifeless furniture resting in the night. But in the back of my mind, that now absent noise still echoed and with it the faintest hint of recollection. Try as I might, I was unable to place anything but the familiarity of it. I wandered around my home, flickering on the lights in the hall outside my room first, then cautiously to the others until the entire house was bathed in yellow. But I could find nothing which suggested the cause of what woke me. The doors were locked, and the windows all closed, and so, with confidence that the noise was merely the faceless product of a dream well forgotten, I returned to bed. And yet, I still felt unnerved for some reason, keeping the bedside lamp on as I tried in vain to claw my way back to the warm comfort of sleep. The next day I went to work, on edge, due to a restless night, but again I felt my thoughts returning to the jacket in my wardrobe, how smart I looked in it, refined. I couldn't wait to try it back on. As soon as the office clock struck five, I rushed outside with nothing but a mumbled word to my colleagues and headed home as fast as I could. Fumbling with the keys in the lock, I made my way into the house, abruptly dropping my bag and coat on the floor and rushed to the oak wardrobe in my bedroom. And there it was, hanging there like an empty vessel which had to be filled. I took the sleeve my thumb and fingers rubbing the dark gray material soothingly with care I removed it from its hanger and stood in front of a mirror I was aghast at the sight of me all my adult life I'd been unkempt my hair ruffled and messy wearing that beautiful jacket it just didn't seem right I felt ashamed of myself of how I looked Quickly, I went to the bathroom and soaked my hair before running a comb through it forcefully. When I returned to the mirror, I looked more acceptable, my hair now shaped neatly into a side parting. Yes, I felt much more at ease, presentable even. A smile crept across my face as my mind explored the image of an elderly gentleman wearing the jacket, a man of industry. A man of experience. Yes, things do indeed tell tales. He'd seen terrible things. Ordered his men resolutely. Shells and gunfire. A man of duty. Yes, I imagined the stories that Jacket could tell of an old officer dining with guests surrounding him. Did they know what the captain had really done? As they sat there, in their evening gowns and dinner suits, they could eat and laugh and drink and dance, but the captain, he could smile, yes, yet inside the world was turning, poisoned by the cancerous artifacts of war. The captain had indeed seen things, but he'd been more than a harmless spectator. In the throes of a dream, I was pulled involuntarily from a serene slumber. Familiarity then broke the silence, a sound I knew but could not place, this time louder than the night before. It had juddered suddenly before ceasing fire. Slowly I rose from my bed and wandered between the rooms of the house to investigate, frightened by the prospect of a burglar climbing through a window. The house sat in the bow of silence, its walls lifeless, and the shadows of night still and unerring. I knew the sound. I knew it. But like a reticent name on the tip of my tongue, the recollection refused to reveal itself. The following day, I struggled to work, shattered my questioning mind in the night. The noise perturbed me. It engulfed me. I was frustrated by knowing yet not knowing. Just what was that sound? Two nights in a row I'd heard it, but no sign or clue of its origin. Through the irritation of sleep deprivation, forced to falsely smile at my colleagues and surround myself with meaningless paperwork, my only comfort through the long day was to think of that jacket, that warm blanket of memory which had taken me into its embrace course, I knew that the captain was merely a character in my mind, the latest in a long line of stories I had created to add sentiment to the world. But I was as fond of him as I was of his belongings. By 5.30 I was home, and, as I had done the day before, I dropped my bag and made my way to the oak wardrobe. Gazing into the mirror, I felt disappointed at what I saw. My hair was pristine, combed to perfection. That the now off-white shirt I wore to work was cheap and grubby. In fact, it was the first time I'd noticed how ordinary my work appearance really was. It wouldn't do. No, it wouldn't do at all. I managed to make it just before 6 o'clock. I breathed a sigh of relief that Sandra hadn't closed the shop. She smiled at me as I entered, but I barely noticed and insisted heading straight toward my objective to where I had found the jacket before. I started rummaging around the bags, which still sat there untouched, filled with the discarded belongings of unseen others. Smiling as I approached the counter, sweat pooling on my brow, I made my purchase and headed home. And amongst the bags I'd found an old burgundy shirt. I wasn't sure of the material, but it was beautiful, expertly crafted, and I knew immediately that it was a shirt worthy of the captain's jacket. Further still, I'd found a waistcoat which seemed to complement both, and so there I stood looking much more presentable. The captain would be pleased. Once more, I awoke to darkness, a sound having wrenched me from my sleep, the same noise I'd heard for the previous three nights. I shivered slightly, not at the temperature of the room, but at something inside me a virus a bug. Whatever it was had produced a mild fever. My bedsheets were soaked in sweat, and I labored to catch a breath. Feeling too weak to investigate the sound, I lay there in the grips of a strange and skewed apprehension. The room was black, but in the hints of objects, the outlines of walls and chair and wardrobe, I looked up to see the mirror. Not vacant, no. But filled with an indistinct reflection. Like a shadow. A silent suggestion of something. The memory remains vague, but one thing has stayed with me to this day. Two eyes, white and wide, reopened to meet mine from the mirror. An accusatory, angered stare which swept over me. A strange icy coldness then took me to sleep, try as I did to resist. The following day I felt remarkably well, dismissing the reflection of the mirror as a fevered hallucination. Indeed, I seemed to have recovered from my ordeal to a great extent. I still had a temperature, however, and so called in to take the day off work. I must admit that the idea of having a day to myself was appealing, and so after taking a shower and making sure I was presentable, I ironed the burgundy shirt, adorned the silk-lined waistcoat, and proudly wore the jacket once more. And there I stood, facing the mirror, smiling and happy. It was only when my phone rang that I realized I'd been standing, rooted to the one spot for most of the day with little or no memory of the preceding hours only vague shapeless visions of light and dark shifting before me accompanied by strange distant knocks and thuds this would have been a concern to anyone in their right mind but not to me no I was concerned with only one thing I still didn't look right I left my home, the ringing phone and an open front door, to make my way steadily, almost marching to the charity shop. Inside, Sandra asked if I was feeling well, and she was worried I looked a little piqued. But I abruptly told her to mind her own business as I waded through the unsorted bags yet again. Feverishly, I pulled a pair of dark suit trousers from between the two faded shirts, followed quickly by an old leather pair of shoes which had lost their shine many years before, and a leather belt with a similarly dulled buckle. I can't remember if I paid for them or not. All I can recall is staggering up the stairs outside my home and into the mirror. Sickness had taken me. My stomach ached and turned as if fighting against the unseen waves of a turbulent sea below. Struggling on, My compulsion would not let go, and before long I stared even deeper into my reflection. Perfectly ironed suit trousers, a gleaming belt and buckle, leather shoes now shined and restored, a burgundy shirt expertly pressed, waistcoat, and of course the captain's jacket. Yes, I looked presentable. It would do nicely, ship shape. Breathing deeply, I gazed and looked into the simile of myself, which smiled back from the mirror. The sickness faded with each inhalation, constraining the rhythm of my pulse. The seconds birthed minutes, and those minutes bled into hours. Moments. Fragmentary slivers of consciousness seeped through like a morning haze, creeping between a closed blind. Voices came to me. Mumbled. Mumbled. Undefined. yet the tone was unmistakably one of anger. I saw flashes of light as I had before, and shapes of darkness moving nearby. My blurred vision continued to withhold the truth from me, the shapes trembling and shifting as if glimpsed through warped glass. A series of loud thuds, almost bangs, sounded, close yet distant. As the sun set outside, the angered voices combined. Voices of countless people coalesced into one mind, one aching chant. Visions came to me. Unbearable sun, a scorched earth, and finally something finite, something tangible. Soldiers. Flags unfurled by a breathless wind. Boots marching, a crowd of people frightened and gunfire. And then there were bodies countless bloodied victims strown across a patch of dirt. The voice, now distilled, drew closer. Words forced their way between gritted teeth, ringing in my ears, still muffled, as if spoken through an unseen, vicious membrane. I felt weight then, a heaviness which burdened my hands, dirtied and stained. And then I held a rifle. And as I looked up, I could see the light and dark which had shifted continuously before me. Patterns which I knew now to be the bleached sky blocked by a tall shadowy figure. His eyes pierced my thoughts as he shouted, yelled, anger, and filled with vengeance. Open fire! It was wrong. I knew it was wrong. Yet I raised the rifle up and pointed at my target, people unarmed and afraid. The voice continued, carried high above the carnage, urging me on, commanding me to shoot. My finger began to squeeze the trigger as the man, the towering imperial figure which I had affectionately referred to as the captain, moved closer, screaming in my ear, the heat from his breath, close and palpable. I shivered. This was not me, not now, not then, not ever. My hesitancy drew condemnation from the shadow outline of the captain. I did not want to disappoint him, and while I felt pangs of duty and patriotism, I could not bear the looks of those people staring up at me as they faced their final moments. I threw the gun to the ground, and as I did, I found myself staring at the mirror, my hand raised in salute, to whom or to what I do not know. The fever now returned, an aching pain burrowing in my stomach. I retched as my body tried to expel something from within, yet it was not forthcoming. Collapsing to the floor, I struggled to stay alert, panicking that I was in need of a doctor. I pulled at the captain's jacket, slipping it off my shoulders and throwing it on the bed, followed quickly by waistcoat, shoes, shirt, and trousers. I lay on the floor for a time, shivering, convulsing, as the sweat seeped through my skin to the floor, as if ridding me of some insipid infection. It was not until after midnight that my strength returned. I pushed myself up from the floor and staggered to the bathroom where I sat in the shower, cleansing myself of the horrid remnants of my hallucination. The beads of water slowly restored me and so finally I returned to my room looking at the clothes, jacket it all which now lay in a crumpled heap on the bed. It wouldn't do at all. Picking them up I placed them carefully on a few hangers and hung them up inside the wardrobe. As I did so a momentary sense of dread washed over me. How oh, I wished I'd listened to it. Deep down I knew that I should have been done with those clothes, but the thought of discarding them filled me with disgust, a lack of respect. Those clothes deserved admiration. They demanded it. Exhausted from my earlier sickness, I staggered into bed. As my eyes gave in to the weight of tiredness, I experienced a moment of clarity. My thoughts cleared through the fog, and with the briefest flicker of insight, I questioned the illness and the profound visions I had experienced staring into that mirror. Whose voice had I heard? What violent act had I become privy to? My last impulse was an uneasy one escape my home and seek shelter far beyond the scope of malevolent force, which now hung in the air, corpse-like and vengeful. The fog of an unseen influence then dulled my senses. I felt being lulled, persuaded, even bartered with, to give myself to a comforting dream of rolling green hills, quaint villages, and a peaceful life far removed from the horrors of war, a place where one could put their atrocities behind them and continue on with a normal life, a sound, the noise which had woken me on each of the previous nights and once more called my consciousness. I tried to pull myself up out of the bed, but to my horror, the sickness had returned, potent, the nausea gripping my stomach. A cold sweat whispered across my skin to an almost unbearable crescendo. Yet the noise still rang in my ear, and in the clutches of sickness, its nature, its identity, finally came to me. The realization shook me, sending panic coursing through my body. A simple sound one that I'd heard each day, but in the blackness of that room it took on a new meaning, a threat covered by the night. The noise came from the wardrobe, coat hangers clinking together like glass within. I lay there, frozen, staring at the wardrobe which now appeared to me like a tomb, a standing coffin which played host to something unseen and which infested the world outside with stark apprehension. Holding my breath involuntarily, I waited for a sign of movement. I imagined the door slowly creaking open, revealing what lay inside. My heart raced, pounding like an unbearable drum, and in my weakened state, fear truly took hold. I felt hopeless, unable to mount a defense should something unearthly climb out from the darkness. For a moment... I thought I saw a shift in the wardrobe, something moving within, causing its frame to shudder almost imperceptibly. I let out a gasp, and in that admittance of fear, that announcement of my awakened state, the truth presented itself. There was indeed something in there. Something ominous and intrusive. It was not inside the wardrobe. It was standing in the corner of the room, hidden by shadow a figure tall and dominant, staring at me under the cloak of night, its eyes pinpoints of light in an otherwise stygian nightmare. And there was a strange moment between us, a silence which provoked more fear in me than I've ever known. We stared at each other from across the room, and it felt to me as though the intruder was sizing me up. Calculating the cost, a strategy for attack, evaluating how weakened I truly was. Suddenly it moved toward me, arms outstretched, and as it did so, I saw it in greater detail, briefly illuminated by a slither of light from a street lamp outside. The jacket which I had been so taken with, the waistcoat, the shirt, the trousers, the shined shoes, all there, presentable, respectable, and worn by the figure of a man, indistinct and shifting, his features and hands nothing but blackened mist. The clothes moved with precision, and as I cried out in terror, the shadowed trespasser was upon me. The dark, coal-like fog, which approximated a hand, grabbed hold of my face, feeling more like worn skin than was suggested by its incorporeal appearance. I instinctively fell backward, rolling out the other side of the bed, crashing to the ground. Despite my sickness, adrenaline urged me to flee toward my bedroom door, but the man was quick and grabbed me by the arm, throwing me into the mirror which shattered on the floor at my bare feet. The glass slid open my back as it fell, and the sharpened pain of countless cuts congealed with the terror. It was then that the figure wrapped its misted fingers around my shoulders, lifting me up before slamming me against the shards of glass on the floor. Countless incisions and slashes rippled across my body as each piece of glass, small and large, ripped open my skin, embedding deep into the muscle beneath. A silence fell across the room, broken only by the shifting weight of my attacker crushing glass underfoot. It was then that I experienced physical pain which I could not put into words. The fog-like figure, prim, proper, and presentable in the captain's clothes, placed its foot upon my chest and pressed down with merciless force. Each blade, sliver, and shard of glass pushed deeper through than under my skin, thrusting further into my body violently, encouraged by pincers of floor and unnatural foot. I could not yell. I could not cry. I could only let out an involuntary gasp of air, and as I did so, the figure finally spoke to me. On your feet, it ordered, loud, pronounced, and with command and in those words I knew that I was face to face with the captain. Leaning over me, his clouded hands reached out, encircling his fingers around my left arm. With ease, he pulled me up off the ground. On your feet! he screamed again, and then battered me against the glass on the floor once more. I wheezed and coughed as a searing pain ran up my side, the impact winding me. I felt a crack deep within as a rib gave in to the assault. I said, get on your feet, Private, Captain ordered, leaning over to grab me once more. Panic and pain mixed together, coursing through my veins. I knew I could not survive another attack. The fogged, darkened hands of the figure then bore down upon me, and in one last desperate plea for survival, I clawed at something close by. A loud tear cut through the night, followed by an almost inaudible gasp. I had inadvertently ripped the pocket of the captain's jacket. My assailant staggered backward for a moment in response, as if wounded. Quickly, I grabbed a blade of grass which lay on the floor, and with every ounce of life I had left in me, I pushed up onto my feet. Launching forward, I feverishly slashed and cut, not at the shadowed man who had attacked me, but at the clothes which were the captain's Achilles' heel. Smog-stained hands thrust up to stop me, but now weakened, they could not prevent me from cutting through jacket, waistcoat, and shirt. Blood oozed out of my hand as the blade of glass cut deeper into my skin with each attack, but I could not relent should the captain regain his footing. He fell to his knees as I tore, scratched, and sliced at the clothes, giving me the high ground. Finally, exhausted, I sat on the bed. From there, I watched the captain lying on the floor, his strength slowly diminishing. The clothes rose and fell with each spectral breath as the darkness, the fog, appendages, and the head of what lay within faded away to nothing. I sat there in that silence, but it was not long before the pain of each fragment of glass stuck in my back returned as adrenaline gave way to utter shock. In the black of night, I heard a word distant and whispered from some obscure history. Mutiny. And then, I was alone. After spending several nights in the hospital recovering from loss of blood, two broken ribs, and a concussion, I finally ventured back to my home. Looking at the glass broken on the floor, my blood dried and congealed. I stared at the torn jacket and other clothes which lay before me. Like the scene of a brutal murder, they outlined the figure. Shoes, trousers, shirt, waistcoat, jacket, all implying the shape of a man. I began to think that it was a damn shame, a waste. They deserved better. The captain deserved more than that. Yearnings began to build, and for a few minutes I explored the idea of having the clothes mended. Perhaps I could have done it myself. Needle, thread, and all. No. I came to my senses and knew that whatever influence those belongings had, I could not yield to them. Quickly, I gathered them up, putting them into a black bin bag as much as those I had seen at the charity shop. No. I came to my senses and knew that whatever influence those belongings had, I could not yield to them. Quickly, I gathered them up, putting them into a black bin bag much like those I would seen at the charity shop. An hour's drive later and I was in the countryside. I got out of the car and hiked for a while across some fields and through some woods, finally coming to a clearing. I did not know entirely where I was going, but Blackwood Forest seemed as good as any a place to do what had to be done. There I set a fire, for I did not want the ashes of these things near my home. As the flames grew, I felt a deep urge to turn back and take the captain's clothes with me. But I persevered. I resisted and threw the wretched things in the fire—first the shoes and trousers, and the shirt and waistcoat. But just before I committed the jacket to the flames, something caught my eye. From inside the lining, which had been torn apart by my attacks, something now protruded. A handwritten letter of commendation for services, above and beyond the call of duty. The writing was worn and faded, and so I could not make out the rest. What I can say is that inside the envelope lay a medal which read Captain Everett, Amritsar, 1919. I threw all of it in the fire, and as I did, I felt a deep sadness and sense of loss within me. As the flames consumed the jacket and other items, the crackle of each burning ember sounded remarkably like that gunfire, distant, long ago, echoing out from the past or from beyond. Yes, things have more than feelings. They have memories. They soak up the thoughts and actions of the people nearby. Heartache, laughter, joy dread. I've never forgotten those days and my brush with the captain. Often my thoughts return to the metal, which I'm sure lies out there in the countryside blackened with soot, yet unharmed by the fire. I think of the words and the name engraved on the metal. The pull of its memory still haunts me, goads me even. I've never researched the name of Captain Everett, the medal, or the jacket, and while my dreams are often invaded by the sound of gunfire and embittered eyes bearing down on me, I know that I must never entertain the compulsion to go searching for answers. For those clothes came from a man of varied deeds, and his sins have left their mark on the world, and by association, an uneasy burden upon me.